Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Songs from the Basement. This is Stuart Held, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. And boy, this we have an extravaganza here today. We actually have uh, two people uh, in the basement. We're going to be interviewing the legendary Tom Ryther, who was uh, in TV and radio in different parts of the United States here, St. Louis, Missouri, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we also have, um, he also uh, put out a book called The Hummelsheim Kid, which is also one of the uh, co-authors who threw it together, a kid named uh, the legendary Jeff Lonto. And uh, what we're going to do is kind of have a bowl session today on the book and life and times of uh, Tom's career, uh, Jeff's career, my career, kind of. And uh, we're just going to kind of, um, you know, talk about our uh, our media people that we've known over the years so we got some good stories to tell you hi tom how are you doing Stuart, um i'm doing great and thank you for inviting me oh you're very welcome i'm very uh, honored to have you in uh, the basement here in the studio here as um another disc jockey used to say here the basement studio i think we know the canon mess uh from a radio station that is still existing today uh and jeff um let me see here i want to make sure your microphone is up I'm here. Okay, there you go. <laughs> He's sitting right next to me. I can yes, swear to that. Yeah. <laughs> I see him now. <laughs> so, anyway, um, yeah, we just wanted to um, kind of get into um, some stories here. Uh, basically, Tom, you're pretty much the star for uh, the show today, and we wanted to um, kind of uh, go through your career, uh, how you started, and um, what um, you know, what made you really get into this crazy business of uh, communications, media, and all that good stuff. Well, at age 83, I've been through okay, a lot. Okay, that's it. No, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, let's let's cut to the nitty-gritty. Uh, in 1948, mm-hmm. that's when television went into our homes. Uh, in right. the Twin Cities, it was KSTP-TV, NBC. In my hometown of St. Louis, it was KSD-TV, also NBC. Uh, they were the... The first network yeah, to go they're, nationwide. They were also Channel 5, weren't they, like KSD? Exactly. Well, yeah. uh, yes, they were both Channel 5 in St. Louis, right? right. And uh, my mom and I, we went to a lot of movies in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And at the age of 11 in 1948, my mom and I went to the Avalon Theater off of Kings Highway Boulevard in St. Louis. My dad was in the uh, tavern business, and he owned vending machines. So many times at night he was out repairing the vending machines. And there was no television, uh, at least up till that point. We listened to the radio all the time. So we went to the movie, and we left the movie, and right next to the Avalon Theater was a television store. Black and white TV only at that time. And it was the first time I ever saw television. And um, there was a guy, uh, Eschen, Frank Eschen was his name, with KSD. He was the anchorman. And I looked at that. I couldn't keep my eyes off of it. (laughs) <laughs> and I said to my mom, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And I was 11 at that time in 1948. And I was very lucky. I like I got to live that dream. It wasn't a perfect ride. It had a lot of bumps and hills. But as I look back upon 36 years, I was very lucky to have uh, lived a dream. That's great. Um, 1948, I also have a uh, an old um, 
uh, air check of we there's a radio station up here in the Twin City area called WCCO and they were AM and they had strangely Thanksgiving weekend I don't know who this guy was who was recording all this it was actually on homemade records you might remember when you did your uh, recordings they were on like uh, these paper records and this one guy uh, Eikenberry was his last name but I don't know his uh, first name we'll just call him Phil or something Phil Eikenberry and he was recording the radio and weather and he said 48 degrees uh, coming up th- Thanksgiving 1948 and I thought this is pretty neat because this is around the time that you were starting your uh, wanting to do your uh, career in radio and saying I want to do that well and, and then not only that my dad had a lot of jukeboxes out at, at different taverns and oh, I nice. grew up with jukeboxes in my basement my garage pinball machines cigarette machines and uh, along with him owning uh, an interest in a tavern so I was uh, so lucky to, to work with my dad at sometimes taking out jukeboxes and putting them in taverns and helping to pick the records that he put on there oh, and, and typing out the little name tags. And it all started uh, with my dad in the early 1940s. Well, I take it back. It was right after World War II, so it would be about 1945. And my dad uh, had a, a bunch of Rockolas and Wurlitzers. At that time, they played 78 RPM records. Sure. And then it went to four, uh, to 45 and then to 33. But I got to pick out a lot of that music and help put on my dad's uh, <laughs> jukeboxes. So I became a music lover. I'm a lousy musician, but I love music. And during my career, because it all started as a disc jockey, I got to meet some pretty famous musicians, singers, and what yeah. have you. And, uh, and it was just always a, whether I met a, a, a hotshot entertainer, singer, athlete, newsmaker, I was pretty lucky to do it all. That's nice. Um, yeah, you said that you hobnobbed with a lot of I, what before we started the show when we were just uh, putting everything together here. Uh, you and Jeff were going back and forth with some uh, people that you met, and I can't wait to get to some of these stories here. I'm like, okay, hold, remember that, hold that thought, and we're gonna, you know, talk about this or that. Um, after that, I actually uh, found out that uh, in the early '50s. Uh, or early mid fifties when you wanted to do, uh, did you have any um, uh, what do you call it, places that you actually was able to work at? You know, te- television or that came later actually, and uh, after high school. Well, it really didn't start for me until after high school. Um, okay. I, uh, you're going to laugh at this. I went to a school called the W. F. Brown School of Oral Expression. I like that title. Yes, which is basically, a, it had a little broadcast studio, mm-hmm. and they were on Delmore Boulevard in St. Louis, and I, I had just graduated from high school. We didn't have the money for me to start in college, so I, I worked on a construction job, mm. and I went to that night school. And W.F. Brown, he was named World's Fair Brown. He was born in 1904, the year of the St. Louis World's Fair. Mm. But he taught me a lot. He and his wife, they had all the equipment, the turntables, and I got to read newscasts and spin records. And do nice. interviews. So that was really the beginning for me to begin my dream. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's um, a lot of people who go into uh, radio and all that. Yeah, they have the dream. I mean, I was four four years old li- listening to the radio uh, in my brothers and sisters' bedrooms, even my own. And my dad used to have records, and my older siblings always bought records. And 
I would sit there and listen to them and watch the records spinning around and all that. And uh, when I heard uh, <clears throat> one of the top 40 radio stations out here with their jingles and all that, I wanted to do that. I knew what I wanted to do. I never really got to be a multi-billionaire in the radio business. Neither am I. Don't feel yeah, bad. It's okay. But um, I always had the love for it. I would rather do that than, you know, uh, go into whatever truck driving or something nothing against truck drivers but um it's a that's a habit i i don't have but you know disc jockeying is a good way to talk to the world um deliver stories and things like that and communicate with people and you you do such a service doing that when when you're saying hey did you hear this uh you know in miami florida blah 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 blah, you know where the weather is really bad out there and if you have listeners in florida you can say oh my god take cover you know you know i wanted to mention that actually i have to go back to when i was five years old in 1942 my dad bought a recording machine and he had it set up in the in the living room and i would read the newspapers we'd follow the news on on radio and in the newspapers so i had made uh, disc recordings on my dad's recording machine and i sent it to my uncle taft in the south pacific to to a Navy camp over there. Mm-hmm. His name was Taft Shu. He was the chief uh, CB, construction battalion of the Navy, that built uh, places for the troops to stay on the islands in the South Pacific. Oh, and one of, his, one of his other chores was to smooth out the runway on Tenian Island, where Paul Tibbetts took off with the plane called the Enola Gay, August 5th of 1945, mm. that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Yep. But all the sailors... According to my uncle Taft, when he came home from the war, said that uh, they'd be two or three hundred sitting around listening to my broadcast <laughs> that I did in my house and sent over to the South Pacific. I was about five years old. That's kind of neat because um, right now um, we kind of told you where this podcast goes. It goes all over the world. Actually, you you are now going to be you're probably famous now when uh, people hear this. You're heard uh, or the potential to be heard in Australia, Japan, Spain. England, uh, all over the United States, and your old hometown, St. Louis, we got listeners there, Omaha, Nebraska, and people like that, New York, L.A., and so you're going to be famous, so um, that's what I want to make you do. I want to make you famous again. So, um, (laughs) But that's kind of neat that the South Pacific Islands, in fact, um, my old gym teacher from junior high was in World War II, and he was um, a captain of one of the uh, supply ships going all over the South Pacific Islands, uh, delivering goods to everybody out there, too. So um, I found that out um, many years later, and he used to be very military with us. It's like, and we were like, how come he's screaming at us all the time? I found out later why he was in the military, and we saw the military side of him. Well, I was alive during World War II, and uh, of course it all started in 1941, Mm -hmm. December 7th, when the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And, I mean, I was very much well aware. I was just a kid, four years old. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that was what you did. You followed the war every day, newspaper, radio. And um, I'll never forget it. And it really sort of struck me because I would listen to the news people oh, report yeah. from London, report from the South Pacific. And I, and I kept thinking, what a, what a great job that must be. And it really stayed That's with right. me all, those, all these years. I remember being four or five years old hearing on the news and TV about this, uh, what is this thing, Vietnam? I thought it was a, 
uh, a dog or something, a, a breed of a dog, because I kept watching, um, every time I'd hear the news, my mom would have the news upstairs on uh, TV, and they'd say, today in Vietnam, Vietnam did this, Vietnam did that, and I'm watching across the street, my neighbors uh, having a beagle dog out there, and it would be outside and I thought, I don't know, I was only four or five years old, and I would think, well, that must be a Vietnam over there. <laughs> Little did I know when I got older. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I got to know, uh, came very close to knowing Vietnam. Uh, in 1966, my Army Reserve unit, the 892nd Transportation Company, mm-hmm. out of Belleville, Illinois, I was working for a great radio station, a 5,000-watt, 24-hour-a-day station, but my unit was uh, ticketed to go to Vietnam Uh-oh. in 1966. So we went up to Camp McCoy, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. We were ready to go. We were packed and ready. We were going to go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, then to Vietnam for 18 months. And we're standing in the chow line, and President Johnson is giving a speech. And the one line I'll never forget, I have decided that I'm not going to send the reserves to Vietnam. Oh, what a break. Now, we weren't going to try to run from it like Bill Clinton did. We were all <laughs> going to go. I was in with a bunch of good old southern Illinois country boys mm-hmm. and uh, people from Belleville and the surrounding area. And we never thought of not going, but uh, that's how close I came to going. And I had two small kids at the time. Yeah, that would not be fun. <laughs> yeah, but I admire anybody now. who's been there. Uh, mm-hmm. I know my significant other, Kelly, uh, her uh, brother was uh, two years in Vietnam, was almost killed. And uh, her her uh, older brother was on the USS Vincennes during World War II, and it was uh, sunk by a Japanese torpedo. Oh. And her other brother, Leo, was captured by the Germans in the Battle of Monte Cassino in World War II in Italy. So World War II... Uh, has really been a big part of my life, and it's just like it was yesterday. Yeah. My dad was in World War II, but he stayed in the USA. He was down in uh, Louisiana, actually. And he said that uh, he was guarding um, uh, prisoners uh, during the day, and then he would go to the USO clubs at night and chase dames. That's what he said. Yeah, before I was married, I was uh, guarding, guarding prisoners and chasing dames at night, short. A lot of people so don't know that, but... Uh, we brought over, we, United States, 400,000 Germans yep. during World War II and put them in camps all over the United States, including mm-hmm. here in Minnesota, down in Missouri. And, and, and in fact, the people who took my mother in as a foster child, uh, the lady was German. She came over to America in about 1880. She, was a, she taught German at Washington University in St. Louis, but I... I, she would take me with all the German ladies in the neighborhood to Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis hmm. to take cakes and candies to the German prisoners. Interesting. And she would say, Tommy, those are good boys. It's that <laughs> damn Hitler, she said. Those are good boys. Well, a lot of those Germans came back to live in the United States because they oh, were yeah. treated so well. They didn't want to be captured by the Russians. They would have been killed. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you go back yeah, home. A lot of people don't know that. We had 400,000 Germans uh, mm-hmm. Here in the United States. One of my friends, uh, his father uh, was in Germany, and he went to school one day, and all of a sudden um, he came home and his whole family was gone, put in a concentration camp, and he went to some neighbors that were hiding, and they hid him, and they got him over to the United States as a very young kid, and he's been here ever since, and he said, yep, that is something I will never, ever forget, not knowing where your family is, and they just assume it was concentration camp, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was World War II, so um, 
one thing Hitler said, he uh, did say, give me 12 years and you won't recognize this country. Well, he was he was right on that because 12 years, yeah, the place was in shambles. Yeah, really. I mean, was, yeah, you just don't create a war for that. Well, he he, I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> he was a, I don't think he was an officer, but he was in World War One. Yeah. And he never got over the fact that the Germans lost World War One, And he had such hatred for the English, for the Russians, for the Americans. And it was his goal to take over the world. And uh, unfortunately, every day we'd always find out what our troops were doing in Germany and yeah. in the South Pacific. And, of course, the Holocaust. Total nightmare. It's hard to I can't even believe some people don't believe that that happened. And I, it, it's one of the most horrid times that one could ever imagine. Yeah, it, it was troubled times back then, just to say the least. But uh, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, there were. Oh yeah, there was. Um, I don't have it with me. I could uh, play some of my dad's old uh, army records that he recorded back then when he was. <laughs> every other word out of his mouth was swell. Hi, uh, everything's swell over here. Having a swell time. Uh, I know uh, you're <laughs> worrying about this. That's not swell, but uh, swell up and see us again sometime. Blah blah blah. But uh, we do have some uh, old uh, World War. World War II memorabilia strewn around the, the place oh, yeah. here. But sure. uh, yeah, that's one of your early memories in mine, Vietnam, because I'm a little younger than you. I hate to say it. Uh, <laughs> You're and, a lot younger than I am. I know. And Jeff's a flower child. He's the youngest out of the three of us. <laughs> we haven't heard from you yet, Jeff, but he's listening I'm to just, us. I'm just listening. Okay. What? I'm, I, I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, um, I, I will... Uh, let people know just right now um uh, we're actually here we're hopefully we can sell some books here so i can go platinum uh the himmelsheim kid i'm saying that right hummel himmelsheim kid sorry about that that was it was a german neighborhood in st louis all german mm-hmm. names and german and croatian people okay and i was the sort of the outsider because i'm of english background my family was just totally we're, we're total limeys mm-hmm. okay <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'll take your word for it. Oh, that's a nickname for the English because they, they are known to have bad teeth and they're Aww. sucking on limes all the time. They're supposed to help their teeth. That's how they got the Americans uh, named them that during World War II. Okay. I, I knew nothing about that. Yeah, just, sorry. They, they like their lime. Ah, sorry, anyone who was listening in England. Um, but yeah, we do have people listening in England, but uh, we like them a lot. Oh, I love them. That's yeah. my family. In fact, one of my close friends came from Liverpool. Seriously, and he li- he lives here in uh, Minnesota, and he's been a uh, musician his whole life. Uh, so he's yeah. been, yeah. He's well, doing you're going to really get well. me started now because my family oh, came we, from England in 1634. I June, was going to get to that. June of 1634, and I'll shut up until you ask the question. But uh, okay. Thomas Ryther, that was his name, came from Yorkshire, England, mm-hmm. landed in Boston uh, with the uh, Massachusetts Bay Company. He was not among the originals. That was Jamestown. And then, of course, the Mayflower coming into the Boston area. But our, my family's been, been around since 1634. Okay. Yep. You, uh, you're an oldie but goodie. Yep. Your family is. <laughs> I'm an oldie for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, there's a Ryther house uh, that was built by my fourth grade grandfather, mm-hmm. David Ryther, in 1745 oh, in, nice. in uh, Burniston, Massachusetts just a few miles from the Vermont state line. And uh, I've been there four times. I was there two years ago, and it, it's huge. He raised 11 children there. And his son, Hoffney, my fifth-grade grandfather, died in the Revolutionary War. Oh, And wow. David so, fought as a, uh, he was uh, in the French and Indian War, mm-hmm. and he helped to found the town of um, 
Bernardson, and he fought in the Revolution with his two sons, David and Hoffney. Oh, nice. So, yep, you've got some history here. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, well, my yeah, my family, just uh, half of them came from uh, Europe, and my grandmother came from Chicago, so... Uh, <laughs> so that's that's real good. Um, well, it's a melting pot. That's everybody from is, all over. Yeah. Actually, Chicago was the first, uh, like Los Angeles. I mean, everyone first came, you know, to New York. You know, that mm-hmm. were coming to America. You know, 150 years ago, 100 years ago, and then all of a sudden they they kept saying, "Go west, young man." And then they come to Chicago. Uh, you know, some of them move up to uh, you know Minneapolis or you know, whatever, uh, St. Louis, Miami, and uh, Dallas. And then they all come way out to Los Angeles, and they realize, oh, we can't go any further. Who who put this uh, big pond over here? Yeah. Pacific Ocean. Um, and they, that's where they uh, ended up. But, um, yeah, a lot of it is explained here. We're going to get to a few more um, in your book, uh, The Humble Shime Kid, Tom well, Ryder. Well, I could we can, inter- yeah. interject something since you sure. bring up the book. We wanna, um, yeah. web- People buy this one. Well, let me explain that. Website to go to, it's Studio Z, that's Z as in Zenith, StudioZ7.com. And there's a link right at the top of the page that uh, describes that book and some other stuff that we've done. And uh, click into that, uh, describe the book and give you ordering information. And there's some other things about Tom Ryder on the website as well that you can check out as as well okay you know without jeff this this never would have been done uh I, you remember i'm sure in 1991 when i uh for the first I, I, I was never fired throughout my 36 years except until 1991 and i had the wrong person as a news director but maybe it was time to leave and it was and then i wound up and we can get into that later suing the company for age discrimination but jeff called me back in 1991 wanted me to write a book and i wish i'd have done it but i just was so i because i was in court for six years Mm. on this trial and i thought well let's lay off but without jeff this book doesn't get done he did a great job of designing the book and he was sort of my conscience if i wrote something that was shouldn't be in there he would tell me so we we really did have a a team venture in putting this book together and we're both very proud of it yeah we initially met years ago uh at a uh, WTCN um, alumni reunion party that uh, and that was Dick Driscoll's guest. <clears throat> Excuse me, because he uh, he was widowed at that at that point, so I was his date, so to speak. Just kidding, but no, we uh, it was out in Bloomington, and I was of course I was starstruck. I was meeting uh, uh, a lot of the old alumni of WTCN TV. Warren Martin was there, and uh, 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 the general manager. Um, Bob Franson. Franson was there. Casey Jones, Roger Awesome was there. Who I met a couple Roger Awesome, yeah. Met a couple of times before, and and uh, Tom Ryder was there, and uh, uh, Barry Seward, uh, announcer who mm-hmm. years earlier was a disc jockey oh, yeah. at yeah. Uh, KDWB and other stations, and uh, and we we chatted then, and we hit it off, and 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 all of that, and we stayed in touch, and you had told me you had uh, some. Uh, two-inch wide videotape of some of your old stuff and then for years we were looking for a way to get that dubbed and we finally found somebody who would do that that would be uh, tom osman of uh twincitiesmedianow.com which is another good website with a lot of yeah, he's got a lot of the, a lot of the old stuff on there right right and it's uh, a good place to go yeah and we so stayed in touch over the years and then uh, we and then uh, tom got a hold of me a couple of years back saying he's ready to do this book after i had suggested that to him so 
long before that, and uh, you were saying you went back to your hometown just to kind of jog your memory, and uh, and you just started going at it, and you were sending me uh, these uh, manuscripts, and we put them together and edited them and found a bunch of pictures uh, to to add in and uh, i mean tom had a lot of his personal pictures i had some old tv guide advertisements featuring him yeah, he's I'd got more stuff well. you wouldn't believe what <laughs> jeff has that, yeah. that we put into the book a lot of stuff right and uh it was uh it was fun doing it and then plus you know, it gave me the opportunity to work with another um with with another author because i've uh, i've published my own stuff and just to get it out there and i started studio z7 publishing mainly to publish my own stuff initially, but I wanted to work with others, so I wasn't just uh, simply a self-publisher. And uh, Tom was willing to work with me on that, and uh, we made this thing happen. And it's it's a good book. I've gotten a lot of good reviews of it, and and whatnot. So StudioZ7.com is uh, the place to find it. Also, uh, Jeff has done some other uh, books, too, in the past. Before this one, um, <clears throat> he wrote a book about a station I used to work at, WWTC, and I was actually going to do a scrapbook of it uh, back in the late 80s, and I worked there. And, and then, I interestingly pulled... enough, WWTC, very uh, uh, a talk station now, and Tom's done a couple of interviews there mm-hmm. as a talk station, so... It's all kind yeah. of made full circle. They're, yeah, their talk station. They were an oldies station when yeah. I worked there twice. Right. And I, I was pulling up all this old stuff that they had in different rooms, and I actually let Jeff come in while I'd be working there doing production or whatever during the day. And he was saying, yeah, I'd like to meet some of the other people here and all that. And I said, well, there's uh, Del Roberts over there. There's Brian Turner. There's uh, this or that. There's a GM. A GM kind of drove us crazy because uh, we had some big people working there, and including your old co- uh, cohort, Barry Zavan. Yeah, he, he was a disc jockey yeah, there he, for yeah, a while. For, yeah, so. for, for I didn't couple, know that. For a couple of months, yeah, he was he doing the afternoon shift, and then uh, it didn't last very long, and they... they uh, but and they they gave him some publicity. They sent out press releases when they hired him, and uh, and, you, and the station at that time they weren't talk. They were doing a rock oldies format at that point. Kind of their second stint as a rock oldies station. They were trying to uh, bring back their former glory from a decade earlier, and it didn't they quite failed. work out that way. But uh, but Barry Savan was there briefly, and there's a, a few other people. He came, was a, he was a great talent, Barry. He could do a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, he really parlayed his time in the Air Force where he studied meteorology and then became a television weatherman. And he became a legend in the Twin Cities. Yeah. yeah. I have his old weather report from, well, not from him, October 23rd, 1980, right in my hands here. And uh, I do believe the weather was, without my $1 cheat sheet glasses, I can't see anything. Um, 48 degrees, actually, and it was 48 degrees today um, up here. So yeah, uh, records today for Thursday, October twenty third, nineteen eighty. I just I just pulled this out, but you know what though? I wanted to show you this. We were talking about other stuff. Um, yeah. So Jeff has done a book on WWTC where Barry Barry. A lot of people might not know who he was, but he was a really good guy here, and he uh, did work with Tom at over at uh, KSTP. And Barry did a couple shows, the ski scene. We'll get to the theme song in a little while, right. but um, I happened to uh, take this out. It was from uh, Sunday, January 17th, um, featuring uh, Denny, uh, 
Denny Schaefer and Dr. Dave from WLOL, uh, former Viking great Matt Blair, world champion twins, uh, and the twins higher ground, the band. Uh, I don't know when this was actually from. Probably sometime. Uh, oh, at Jukebox Saturday Night, Steve Schessler's old place. So this is old. Anyway, but um, I we put out uh, some stuff from old political people. Dave Dernberger, uh, the Boschwitz boys, Rudy Boschwitz, uh, all this stuff. So uh, here we go. I'm just trying to be Is any of that relevant? I don't know, but uh, the Minnesota kick, Kicks, yeah. the North Stars. Yeah, I did their play-by, not play-by-play, play, I did their um, their color uh, on their telecast, oh, the oh, Kicks. The Kicks. Okay. With Rod Trongard. Yeah, here we go. I, I just uh, had old uh, brochures on that, if you guys Yeah, wanna... that was a fun deal, uh, doing the... Um, the Minnesota Kicks, they drove huge crowds at the old Met Stadium, and Rod Trongor did the play-by-play, and I did color, and mm-hmm. boy, we went all over the country. We were, we were in Vancouver, Seattle, New York, Dallas, Washington, D.C., and we, it was just wonderful. Rod Trongard, um, he was a legend. Barry Zavan, by the way, has, uh, died a year ago on January 1st. Yeah. God bless him. He was a great talent he was a good guy and a great person. Him. I'm so lucky to have known and worked with so many of these people. Yeah. Oh, here's his old drink. I'm the one that gave you worms. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, right. He was in Seattle, Vancouver at that that uh, period of 1976. He was a. Uh, uh, I don't. They they put um, they they took him away from us and from the Twin City area and uh, told him yeah to go to Washington and he made this. Um, I don't. He endorsed this drink actually, and they have that commercial up here in the Twin City. I didn't area. know that. Yeah, 1976. Yeah, he went to work. At, at, uh, we lost him to Washington, D.C. Washington. And then he it. went to Detroit. And when I took a job with NBC in Cleveland and, and New York, I stopped by Detroit because I had to do some promos there and uh, got to visit Barry. And then then Barry came back to the Twin Cities, and I'm happy yeah. to say that I had a lot to do with bringing him back. Well, and then, That was good. Thank you. Another uh, bit of trivia as well. In 1978, Barry was looking at coming back to the Twin Cities, uh, KMSP Channel 9, then the ABC affiliate. Uh, there are rumors that ABC was shopping the affiliation around to another station, so they tried to beef up their news operation, and one of the things they were going to do, one of their secret plans, they are going to bring back Barry Zavan, and he was interested in coming back to the Twin Cities. But just before they made him an offer, uh, ABC announced that they were going to be switching their affiliation over to KSTP, the NBC <laughs> affiliate where he Tom used to home. work. And uh, Channel 9 was to become an independent station. They weren't going to have the news budget that they did, and that uh, that deal ended up uh, uh, not working out. And then, um, But then, yes, Barry's van came back to Channel, Channel 11, WTCM, because that's where the NBC affiliation ended up going to uh, – to Channel 11, and it's all complicated, and people who aren't real well-versed in broadcasting, and it's all alphabet soup to them, but uh, that's kind of how, me hungry. how that uh, business works. Yep, uh, that's right. You know who else auditioned at KMSP? Uh, David Letterman, when oh, he yeah. was a weatherman. As a weatherman as well, yeah, that was, David in fact, David Letterman. Letterman told that story to Barry Zavan. When Barry Zavan had interviewed him in the uh, 1990s. Mm-hmm. Well, Letterman was offered the job, but he didn't want to compete against Barry. Right. That's a fact. <laughs> really? Yep. Right, yeah, that was about 1974. Whoops. and yeah, yeah, because at that time, their lead anchor, one of their lead anchors was Phil Bremen, who was from Indianapolis, and he knew Letterman from there because Letterman was the uh, was a weatherman at the ABC affiliate in Indianapolis. 
Aha. Uh-huh. I did not know that. Yeah. So yeah he I was know. afraid of all people, Barry's a van. Well, Barry owned the market at that time. He was uh, really, Barry was the Saturn rocket that got us off the ground. It was uh, Ted O'Brien, Barry's a van, myself, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody just went crazy over Barry. He was so different. Yeah. And, and he really knew what he was talking about, but he made it fun. And he got us off the ground. And uh, then Ted O'Brien left, and Ron Majors came in, and we went from deep second place in the ratings to number one. And and I, I think it was sometime in the, the late, Jeff, maybe you know, 76, 75, we had a 51% share of the audience, a national record. No station has ever come near that. Right, and after uh, Barry left uh, and brought in Dr. Walt Lyons, yeah, and the ratings and he was just great. kept going up. Yeah, Lyons had his doctorate, mm-hmm. was an expert mm-hmm. at tornadoes. He studied under Dr. Fujita at the University of Chicago, and Walt did a great job. So we didn't miss a step. But Walt was more the scientist, and Barry was more the entertainer. But they yeah. both had a lot to do with our success, and Ron Majors was great, and I was happy to be along for the ride. I remember a commercial when Ron Majors first came here, and he said, yeah, I'm a news, uh, new newscaster for KSTP, and the driver uh, dropped him off at the old radio uh, KSTP place up north, I think in Anoka. And when the no, cab got uh, no, it, Maplewood, it? actually. Maplewood? Yeah, no, no. Uh, CCO was in Anoka. They're, that's where they're. I was there that day. The oh, okay. Was. I was part of that. You were part they of that. They dropped I'm... them off in front of where KSTP is now. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, off of I University it Avenue. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I was right in front oh. of KSTP television. The, the okay. cabbie who was a paid actor, you know, yeah. he was I'm driving wrong. the car. He says, you, you're that Majors guy, you know, and he <laughs> gets out. And Barry and I were there to welcome him. Right, yeah, 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 University. Oh, yeah. Now, Barry actually said something about Ed O'Brien when I worked with him at, at WWTC, and uh, I always like saying it that way. Um, <laughs> I asked uh, Barry, actually, what was it like to work with Tom and, and Ed, and he says, oh, Tom, he, he was wonderful. Yeah, we had a real good time. We were, you know, like up in the share rating. And then he said something um, about Ed. Uh, he wasn't knocking him or anything, but he did say that uh, the only thing about uh, Ed O'Brien, he Ted thought O'Brien. he Ted. Ted Ed O'Brien. That's okay. It rhymes. It rhymes. I'll, I'll go upstairs to and you guys can do the show. <laughs> I need some coffee or Welcome something. Welcome to being a human. You exactly. made a mistake. Probably about time to play a song anyway. But. Yeah, well, we'll get to a couple of them. Um, but we're having a good time anyway. Uh, but Ted O'Brien, O'Brien um, he said that uh, Ted O'Brien uh, had that Ted Baxter uh, uh, scenario. He always thought that he was a little bigger and better than uh, Tom and me. And and we had a little bit, you know, kind of like an ego thing. And I'm thinking, I'm not trying to knock this at no, I, ne- I never, I never felt that way about Ted, and I'm surprised that, that although I, I got to know Ted a lot better than Barry did. Okay. But Ted was a great talent. His father was a, was a big-time announcer here in the Twin Cities. And, um, but the, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, KSTP was founded as a radio station back in, what, 1923, something like that. Yeah. And yeah, so he was a pioneer in broadcasting. And uh, eventually, he wanted to start this thing called television. But nobody would give Mr. Hubbard, the senior Mr. Hubbard, S.E. Hubbard, uh, a loan. And Mr. Hubbard told me this. Uh, it was such an honor to work for this guy, a, a, a pioneer, yeah, a legend. He. But he had to go to the Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh to get a $1 million loan to start KSTP-TV. Oh, wow. That is right. And I tell you, I, I was just an honor. Now, I was lucky. Old man Hubbard. Like me, he invited me to play golf, and I'd say, Mr. Hubbard, 
I've got things to do today. He said, you have a staff. Just be on the first tee at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and, I, and I just, a uh, uh, little story about Mr. Hubbard. He took a young comedian to play his very first round of golf here in the Twin Cities at Meadowbrook. Uh, Bob, Bob Hope. Hope. Yep. Took Bob Hope for his first round of golf. Well, Meadowbrook, yep. And another thing, uh, even prior to KSTP-TV going on the air in 1948, before that, way back in 1939, Stanley E. Hubbard um, got RCA to sell them, or to sell him, one of their first television cameras, the first one private that they sold. It was the first one ever sold. Yes, yes, and they set up uh, an experimental uh, closed-circuit yep. station mm-hmm. and, and all of that, so that's, I mean, there is a lot of history. He was a visionary, there. Mr. Hubbard. I just, uh, I'll, I'll never forget when the uh, remote units came into being, and we were at KSTP, and we were on the rise in the ratings, and they came up uh, with these uh, uh, remote trucks where you could go out and do remotes anywhere live. In fact, I did the first remote in the history of, um, I did a, at a North Star game using that equipment. But a, oh. a group of the executives were sitting there in the studio, and they were arguing, and old man Hubbard walks in, and he says, well, tell me this, do these things work? And they said, well, yes, they do, Mr. Hubbard, then buy them. Okay. Bam, bam. And that was it. That was uh, the guy. Was he it. was a visionary. And he used to fly mail routes with Charles Lindbergh before all this started, oh, back in the 20s. Uh, you know what? Um, uh, you Another person that uh, probably didn't work for KSTP, it could have been Channel 11, one of the uh, commentators or sports reporters, possibly for WTCN, Joe Boyle. Joe's my uh, friend. Yeah, okay. He, yeah, he was good w- friend. WTCN and the... Uh, in the seventies, when they were independent, yeah, I did sports, play by um, play. I yep. knew his uh, his daughter actually went to school with her, if that's the same thing. But I asked her, "Is your uh, dad Joe Boyle?" She goes, "Yes, he yes he is." I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so, now Joe's a really a good guy. Uh, last I heard, he moved out to Arizona, mm. and uh, he just uh, he did uh, he did Twins baseball, um, he did uh, North Star hockey. He did some Vikings football. He was a good, good guy, good, yeah, talented then, guy, and, and then, a nice guy. And then after he left Channel 11 in the Twin Cities, uh, he was an early reporter at ESPN in 1980. Yes, he was. Right, exactly. Same thing with Skip Losher. He went out and did some. Yeah, he went to CNN. Or or CNN. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever know a guy named Don Leon, a camera oh, yeah, guy? No, I, I know him very well, yes. Okay. Good guy. Um, KSTP. Yes, KSC, he he said that uh, I know I knew him too. He died about uh, seven eight years ago. Uh, yeah, they were wonderful they crew were, over there. I'll tell you. Yeah, he um, he had some traits. I he was my TV teacher over at Hennepin Technical College, which is in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, mm-hmm. USA, and um, I had him as a teacher in the nineteen early nineties when uh, I got kind of discouraged with radio and I went into television for a few years and then came back in this podcast stuff. But anyway, Don uh, said, you know, I left KSTP in 1973, 74 to go over and teach, and I had to tell all the kids about uh, the olden days of TV and KSTP, and I said, did you have anything to do with Horror Incorporated? He looked at me and goes, you're too young to remember that. I said, no, I, I watched uh, Horror Incorporated. Uh, which was, they showed old uh, horror movies uh, late night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. But he said he was there since 1948 or so, up until 73, and he was a director and all that. Oh, yeah, he was very good to work with. In fact, I went out and talked to that class you're talking about on two occasions. He invited me out to be sort of a guest, uh, Mm. not lecturer, but, you know, to talk to the kids and say, well, I'm going to tell you, here's, here's how it's done. 
here's what you should do. And, and I, I, gotta, I just really enjoy doing that for Don. Okay. Yeah, I did ask him once if he worked with you guys, the world today, you know, all that. He says, oh, yeah, you know, uh, he used to do that a lot, too. <laughs> that I don't ear. remember. Okay. Slapping he, his ear. Okay, well. <laughs> yeah, he did that a lot when he was with us. You got to stop and think about this, so be aware. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, he that's probably different. Did that too. Uh, but, yeah, he uh, gave you guys high marks and all that. So, uh, and oh, I we told had a him, great crew. You know, you're yeah. only as good as your technicians. And I just, mm-hmm. uh, I always admired, because I'm such a klutz, uh, <laughs> technically. And, and I too. just And I always, I mean, I... I, I the guys in the videotape department and and then the people who ran all the remote equipment and and then later on of course I started in the business with the 16 millimeter mag stripe magnetic stripe film and we had oh, to yeah. shoot the picture and develop it and then mm-hmm. pe- sometimes you'd have three or four projectors going all at the same time and and then I I said I I'll never forget I told uh, some of the people I worked with someday this is going to all going to be on videotape and we can <laughs> forget about this film stuff well it's gone from videotape and uh, through several progressions there, and now it's all digital. Yeah. You know, my son is a photographer, a, an, an Emmy Award-winning photographer for WCCO-TV. I'm very proud of him. Wow. Channel 4. I know a few people working there, too, So or did. <laughs> no, he worked with Mark Rosen and uh, Mike Max and um, Ralph John Fritz, who was a, a oh, really yeah. a great friend. Uh, I had a, always a great admiration for CCO, and I'm so happy my son has been there. He's been over there, been there for about 20 years or more. I wonder if you worked with, I can't think of his name now, uh, CCO. All right, I'll think about it at 4 in the morning. Um, uh, I was going to ask you something, too, that just came up in my head. And, of course, I forget about it, too, because I've got two thoughts clashing with each other. But, uh, oh, well, I can't think of it at the moment. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Okay, Jeff, you can... Uh, Put it on uh, record lo- and maybe we can take a break and try to decide what, what we're going to Okay, we'll, we'll do that. How about that? Okay, well, let's go back to, let's say, 1955, uh, or pretty close to it. The year I graduated from high school. Yeah, I, I picked out some stuff from uh, 55. I didn't play, uh, you know, have all hits or anything for you, but stuff from that period when you were in high school. You might not remember this version of it, but uh, Elvis Parsley, Presley, uh, see, I'm a klutz, that's why I go into <laughs> podcasting, <laughs> um, did this... Uh, the, one of the original songs by Big Mama Thornton uh, made this um, made this record, and Elvis heard it and had to make a hit out of this. Big Mama Thornton in a song that Elvis made popular called Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Oh! 
Mama Thornton, and guess what? She, uh, Tom was in high school when that came out, 19, I guess 1953, but that's okay uh, because um, you were still, you know, cracking the books and all that, and a young kid back then. And, oh, you know who else was also in high school that graduated in 1954? Uh, another disc jockey up here, a guy named uh, Jimmy Reed. His, his name was James Rudd at that time. So uh, you're about the same age. Yeah, well, I, I Elvis was born in 1935, and I came along in 1937. Oh, okay. and and of course he was um, born down in Mississippi, and and but uh, he he took a lot of his music from the black musicians. He loved mm-hmm. their music. I didn't realize that he got you ain't nothing but a hound dog from that recording. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's that it, it was in interesting because he did a lot of covers and i mean i could uh if i in the future do a bunch of like a an elvis presley tribute stuff he covered i could go on for four hours uh for him doing other people's music and i didn't realize some of those songs uh that he made popular were done by other people yeah he went to a lot of black nightclubs and really emulated their sound Mm -hmm. but that's really interesting to hear that ain't nothing but a hound dog i didn't know that it came from uh that record yeah well i'm glad i played it for you yeah that's great you know oh yeah we got some other surprises too um but yeah i was just trying to pull out some stuff that uh you may have known when or stuff that came out when you were in high school and kind of get that 50s vibe got an interesting you know, story about elvis yeah. a couple of them um when i i i got out of the army uh, i graduated from the university of missouri school of journalism i worked for a couple of years in a construction gang and then saved up money. We, we were having some money problems, so I, I paid for the first couple of years of my school. And my first, uh, then right out of the uh, university, I went into the Army for six months. And then I auditioned for a job at WSOY Radio in Decatur. And the guy, his name was Downey Huey. I remember like it was yesterday. He came out, and I hadn't been on the air in over a year. And he said, you know, you're okay, but I think you should maybe think about a different profession. And I drove out of Decatur, and I thought, okay. But I had a friend of mine from the University of Missouri, Jerry Heller, who wanted me to come down to Jackson, Tennessee, to do the morning show at that radio station, a great southern radio station, The Voice of Dixie. So I I went down there and uh, took my very first job out of college at WDXI in Jackson, Tennessee. And I replaced Wink Martindale, who was the morning disc jockey, who became very good friends with Elvis Presley because it was only 90 miles away from Memphis. And uh, and Wink went on to great things as a game show host and things like that. But I only stayed there for a couple of years. But uh, in later years, I'll, I'll never forget, I was doing a Vikings play-by-play, and I, I, I was on my way to San Diego. And... Uh, I got off the plane because I wanted to see Elvis entertain. So I, I stayed at the Hilton in Las Vegas. And 
for some reason I couldn't sleep that night because I saw Elvis the night before and I was all excited about that. I really liked the guy. And at 5 in the morning, I'm wandering around the casino at the Hilton, and there is Elvis sitting there with his girlfriend and a couple of friends, and they're playing blackjack. And he turns around, and he looks at me, and he is high. And here I am, Mr. Big Mouth. I couldn't think of anything to say, and I said, hi. And I should have said, hey, I, I know Wink Martindale, I, and, but I didn't. And, and then I got to see him play live uh, in St. Paul as the guest of Mayor Latimer of St. Paul. And uh, I got to see him. Uh, George Latimer? George Latimer. He, I was his guest. Yes. Well, I got a story for you. Yeah, on him. good guy. I mean, I mean, yeah. you know, but it was, a, it was a wonderful evening. But I, the, at least I came face to face with the great Elvis Presley. And I was, uh, I was in Victoria, British Columbia. On the day I heard that he died, that Elvis died, and I literally had to pull over my car and cry. I felt like I'd lost a friend. I was at this game, the kicks game for this program I'm showing you, yeah. the day where I came right home after the game, I heard Elvis died. It was, yeah. uh, yep. Oh, no, wait a minute. Well, it was it was one of those. But, yeah, I was at a kicks. Well, this is radio, game. so people can't see what you're holding. Well, I, you know, like. during that trip that it, when I was out at Victoria, I actually went out there to do the kicks playing oh. at Seattle. So when I left Victoria, British Columbia, uh, my wife and I at that time, we, we worked our way back into Seattle where we did the kicks game, uh, Rod Trongard, myself. We got to go to a lot of really neat towns when I was doing the kicks. I'm but, wrong on the date then, but I was at something. No, I'm sorry. I was not at a kicks game. Sorry, people. I was at a baseball game, Twins. So you were out there doing the kicks game. That makes more sense. Yeah, in, in Seattle. I'm, I never will forget it. Yeah, Yeah, I did too. I thought, oh my God, he's so young. But uh, then again, I thought, well, his career is done. He hasn't had a hit in a while. Have you ever been but, to uh, Graceland in Memphis? No, never been on I just, just was there two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got down to 31 below zero here in the Twin Cities. So my sweetie Kelly and I, we drove to Mississippi. But on the way back, we stopped by Graceland. And I, mm. I, just, I just got chills. It made me very sad, though, because... Elvis is buried in the yard out there at, yeah. at, at Graceland with his parents, and but I, I go to I went to all the rooms and I kept thinking, he, how happy he must have been when he was here, because was Graceland here. meant so much for him. So I can say now that I've been to Graceland, but I, I I idolized him, I really did. He played up here in 1957 in uh, Minnesota, and I guess the rumor has it he stayed at a St. Louis Park uh, hotel called the Lakeland Inn. He played Minneapolis, and then the night after, he played St. Paul, the mm-hmm. Twin Cities. Um, St. Paul and Minneapolis are really joined together uh, now by highway. But um, he played both cities one night and the other uh, for all the St. Paul people to play at one of the other arenas, and then he played up here at the convention center. You know, the guy, could, he, you know? he was a great singer. He wasn't just a, a rock and roll person. He had a wonderful voice. Yeah, boy, the influence of him uh, around the world, too. Um, I mean, uh, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, they, they loved him. Yep. Even Lennon said that, uh, yeah, one of the first records I ever bought was an Elvis Presley record, you know. <laughs> and then he said, yeah. you know, uh, someone said, well, do you like his 60s stuff? Well, you know, when he went into the Army, that's when they castrated him, you know, and all that. So in other words, I don't think the Lennon liked uh, well, stuff after and that. And then after that, he was doing the movies and all the that movies, stuff. Yeah. And then his music got a little hokey here, but you can pick out a song or two off those movie soundtracks that aren't bad either. But he did do some great stuff over the years, to be honest. And, uh, you know, him and the Everly Brothers were the big two, Chuck Berry three, were the big, big influences on people. Yeah, Chuck Berry died not too long ago. He uh, mm-hmm. 
he had sort of a compound at Wentzville, Missouri, right outside of St. Louis. And uh, one day I was playing golf with a friend of mine down in St. Louis, and I stopped off at the casino. I've never been much of a gambler, but my friend was a gambler. So I'm wandering around, and I'm thinking, yeah, who's this guy at the slot machine? And I kept staring, and finally, I, it was Chuck Berry. He's gambling. He's down, he, <laughs> he, he went to the same slot machine at this casino in St. Charles, Missouri, which was a, a boat on the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. But he was there every day, which is only a few miles from Winsville. But he was... Okay. Uh, a lot of famous rock and roll musicians patterned their styles oh, after definitely. Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. I should say some more. Fats Domino, Little Richard, and uh, uh, Bo Diddley. Actually, those were the, those are the biggies. And strangely, at this present time, Jerry Lee Lewis is still living. He's like the last of those, yeah. I, you know, big icons of the fifties. People thought he'd be the first to go. And he, he, I mean, he should have because he lived the wildest life. And oh. Fats Domino, who I thought was ninety-nine years old, died recently. And I thought, did he die or not, or is he still living, or whatever? Whatever happened to Fats? And then all of a sudden, we heard that he passed away. I'm like, there he is. Okay, so yeah, he was uh, missing during Hurricane Katrina because he lived down in New Orleans in that area, and I know they're hearing about mm-hmm. it on the news that he had gone missing, and or it was it was in the news, but yeah, you know, he had just simply left the area because it was flooding. But uh, apparently, there, yeah, there was, uh, but uh, he didn't really tell anybody where he went, and, and so it ended up on the news that uh, Fats Domino is missing, and they don't know. Uh, he hey, I got a question for you guys. A little yeah. quiz. You ready for this? Okay. What was Little Richard's real name? Uh, Mr. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Richard Pennyman. Richard From Pennyman. Macon, Georgia. Okay, I knew he was from He was South. great. I loved oh, him. Oh, he had a lot of energy. Oh, I did see Chuck Berry live back in 1987 up here, so he did put on a good show. And what he did, he broke a guitar string, and he had to uh, uh, have his uh, guitar tuner put on a string. And he, um, for five minutes, he gave this big rapping poem. I can't remember what it was. Rose of red, vibes of blue. Uh, I am sad, and so are you. I can't play my music because my guitar ain't going. But da 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 da. And he kept going and going and going. And all of a sudden, the guy brings his guitar back. Okay, thank you, Phil. You know, like that. And then he goes right back into whatever. Little, and so he was very a uh, little different from the way Pete Town and handled uh, situations like that. That's when he, what did he do, for, break his guitar? <laughs> first time he smashed his guitar on stage because he uh, broke a string and got yeah. uh, PO'd about it and just started. And then that became became the act for years for the Who. You know, it's amazing the people, though, that, um, that he really influenced, including the Beatles, including Mick Jagger. I'm talking about Chuck Berry. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's oh, a famous movie theater in St. Louis called The Fox, named after a man by the name of Fox. It opened in 1929. And uh, it, it used to run movies. That's who I would go down. They'd have a live stage show, and then they'd show a movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I used to go to that theater all the time. But Chuck Berry always wanted to play the Fox. He did a two-hour special on public television on NPR TV. Chuck Berry at the Fox. I was not feeling very well that day. I'm watching it on public TV. I actually got out of the bed, and I'm a lousy dancer, and I danced for two hours. I mean, it, 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 I was sick, and by the time that was over, I was well. I mean, the guy just, he just had something that was special. Something about food and music does something for our nervous yep. system. And that, I, that's why I do this podcast show, because I've had a couple people who have 
uh, emailed me from other towns and said, you know what, you made my day. I haven't heard a couple songs you played in years, and I didn't think I'd ever hear them again, and you had it. Thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. I love doing that, entertaining people, or maybe not what I'm saying, but what I play. And that's why I kind of liked, um, uh, you know, playing a couple of things here and there on, on various shows or bringing yourself down here so you can tell all these neat stories for uh, people who might not know any of this information. And it's, you know, I, I like to bring people down here to get their point of view about life and music and everything else. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> um, there was, uh, what was it? Um, you brought up something else here about one of the icons. Um Oh, I was going to ask you, do you remember uh, Dale Hawkins? He's the guy who, uh, we're talking music now, kids. Uh, Dale Hawkins is the guy who uh, wrote Oh, Susie Q back in the 50s, 1956 or so? Yeah, I know the song, but I've, I've not heard of Hawkins. Okay. Oh, I, I was going to... Oh, Susie Q? Yeah. yeah later covered by uh, the Creedence Clearwater Revival in the late 60s. Yeah, they made it a huge hit, too. Well, I've got a story about them later, if you want to ask me, <laughs> concerning uh, Creedence... Clearwater Revival and a murder that I helped solve ah, by accident. The Gollywogs and CCR. Well, I heard that they saved Christmas at one point, too. Yeah, well, as far <laughs> as that murder, I, I remember you telling the story. I don't recall the uh, the connection to Creedence Clearwater Revival. Well, I might, I might as well. I'll, yeah, we I'll try to. Okay. It, if you want. Uh, on May 4th of 1969, I, I, I entered television. I spent 11 years in radio, mm-hmm. and uh, th- that's really where I got my training. Uh, anybody who works on television today, if they haven't spent some time in radio, uh, they, they made a mistake. But uh, on May 4th of 1969, I was living in Belleville, Illinois, working for this wonderful 5,000-watt, uh, 24-hour-a-day where I built their news department and sports department. And um, I had just gone to work in television uh, in 1969 at KPLR-TV in St. Louis, a great independent station. I was still living in Belleville. So I go into work that morning, mm-hmm. and my boss says, there's been a double murder in Muscoota, Illinois. And don't you live near there? I said, yeah, I'm like 15 minutes from Muscoota. So we get in the car, the crew and I go over there and uh, to Muscoota, and there were two young teenagers, uh, Mike Morrison and Deborah Means. Uh, Mike was 18, Debbie was 16. They had gone to the prom, and uh, the song that Mike was singing when he walked out of the house to go to the prom that night was Bad Moon Rising, mm. done by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Make a long story short, they, they go out for dinner, they go to the prom, all the kids go to this little pond outside of Mascuda. Here's this weirdo uh, who uh, liked to sit there and camp for people in lovers' lanes, and his modus operandi was to put the boy in the trunk or the man in the trunk and do his thing with the woman. Mm. Well, anyway... They encountered this guy, Marshall Wayne Stauffer. Debbie and Mike were in a car, and the lights kept flashing behind them. They thought it was a cop. They pulled over. It was this horrible human being. He got them out of the car, drove them to a a place near one of the other ponds, uh, put Mike in the trunk, did his thing with Debbie. Mike got out and tried to fight him, and he shot Mike in the head twice and killed him and choked Debbie to death. That was my story. So now I'm with my camera crew. Clint Crandall, my camera guy, had spent 17 years as a St. Louis policeman. He said, we got time. Let's do some detective work. He said, you know this area over here? I said, I know it very well. I've been living here for a long time. So we stopped off at a couple of crummy-looking apartments. He said, this is a work by a transient. 
So we stopped at a couple of trailer courts. The second trailer court, I knew a guy by the name of Perry Wilson who managed it. Perry, have you got anybody around here renting from you? It's kind of weirdo. He said, yeah, I got this Stauffer guy. Ever since the word came out about these murders, he's gone. Really? You know, here he'd work for Perry. He, was, he, he repaired mobile homes. That turned out to be the guy. I called the, uh, the main sheriff of St. Clair County, Illinois, Cobby Rodriguez, and I told him, I said, you better talk with Perry Wilson at the trailer court near Mascuda. And Perry gave him all the information. They tracked him, uh, Stauffer, down to Wichita. And 25 days after the murder, he was captured in Sacramento, California, working for a mobile home company repairing mobile homes. And I was there at the Belleville Police Department when they dragged his lousy... Uh, every time I think about him, is is behind. Yeah, and and then he winds <laughs> up. The going, internet, you can say it. And then and the, well, he winds up uh, going to prison on a different crime. <clears throat> the uh, the district attorney for that area was afraid to try him and that he might get away. So he winds up going in on a rape charge. Spends twenty one years in a in Illinois penitentiary. Gets out. Goes out west to Idaho. He's about killing people out there. Oh. And they finally uh, they finally captured him in Idaho. And he died in prison at the age of 71. But I, I had a little hand in accidentally solving that murder. That was really a, something I'll never forget. And it's all in the book. I'm hiring you to uh, be my detective then. I covered a lot of murders. That's one thing about news that uh, you don't get over too too easily. Yeah. But that one I'll never, I'll never forget those the bodies of those two kids in and, that field. And CCR was the uh, yeah the, the theme song of that night, supposedly. Well, there's a book kind written of. by... Uh, his brother, by Mike uh, Morrison's brother, mm-hmm. called the title of the book is "Bad, Bad Moon, Moon Rising." Rising. Oh, it's a okay. great book, okay. and it, and I bought the book, and I met, and I called the brother, uh, and it just, it's all happened fifty-one years ago, yeah, and and I met the guy who wrote the book, and it was, you know, and I told him I, I had a little bit to do with them tracking him down yeah and that was a hit at the time ccr that was their latest single yeah with their green yeah. river record bad which moon is rising. yeah green river bad moon rising that's where it's okay wow how that all ties in yeah. so um that's neat well that uh takes steam away from uh what i was gonna ask well, you we should so. have queued up that record if we knew that story was gonna come up because it queued up uh, bad moon rising I have it over here. You Can wouldn't believe the records that this guy's got yeah. down here. He is, he is a museum. museum. This is only a fraction. <laughs> Holy <what> mackerel. <laughs> well, I know I got five different shows running uh, all at the same time. It's um, <laughs> I got a reggae show, jazz, a, uh, a jazz show, metal show, classic metal, regular uh, um, you know, rock and roll top 40 that does all. I don't play all hits, really. And then I'm, I'm trying to get this uh, talk series up in the comedy series and the environmental thing and a beetle thing so i'm i'm only one guy and here it is i i've got to find time to do all these shows please everybody be be patient with us um we're doing our best to entertain all of you out there um but uh yeah i mean i i actually i knocked over two radio stations i can tell now that were getting rid of all their records in the 1990s if you ever wanted to buy records the 90s were the time to get it because everyone was dumping the records for uh compact disc 
CDs. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't care about these Beatle records. Get rid of them. I got CDs. So I took every record I could possibly find, wow. and all my friends were getting rid of the records. And they said, you want my records, man? Dude, come over and get it. You're probably going to have five car loads. I go over there. I'm going, holy eggs. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'll take them. Uh, our college radio station up here in, in Minnesota, WMMR, there's a, another WMMR out in uh, Boston, Mass., and uh, but this was a college station, and one of the guys at the time said, "Hey, uh, I want, I need, I need some help. Dump all these records in the trash in the trash outside the building." I said, "I'll tell you what, I'll get rid of them all tonight for you if I can take them home." He goes, "No, the promotes can't sell them. I don't want you to have them. Just dump them." I'm like, "No, I'll get rid of them in the next two hours if you let me take them home." Okay, you can do it. Two hours. I'm timing you. I got rid of them all in 90 minutes. I took them all home, and yeah. some of them are still here. And another radio station I worked for briefly were getting rid of all their records. They were like, well, we're changing formats. That's why we hired you just for a couple weeks. Oh, by the way, uh, do you know anyone who wants all these records? Uh, how, mu- how many records? They had a little closet. They said, get rid of all these in one day, and they're all yours. Oh, I sweated wow. bullets doing that. And I said, I'll take them. Which uh, station was that? Up in Anoka. Oh, that one. Okay. Yeah, that one. And they were uh, in... Uh, K-A-E-L-N-O. Yep. They they wanted to get rid of everything at that point, and they just told me get rid of everything. And uh, uh, the big rock station up here was getting rid of a bunch of records, uh, the one I used to work at. And they were going all CDs at one point. They said, yeah, we don't need half these records. Get rid of them. So I Did said, you ever hear of KXOK Radio in St. Louis? Uh, Big rocker. No, I haven't. Heard I worked of them. for them. I decided to get off the air for a while, mm-hmm. and I and I actually sold and I did some part time air work for KXOK, huge, giant station, and I didn't really realize that rock and roll was that important because it was reaching the younger audience, which advertisers now are are after that audience of eighteen to fifty four, but I used to go around trying to sell advertising and people say, oh, no one likes that music. The trouble is, that's the group that's doing all the buying in the stores. Oh. That's sorry. why rock and roll has been so successful. Right. right. Well, then, especially that the uh, young people at that time, of the, the so-called sorry, baby boom, they were uh, coming of age at that time. Mm-hmm. And as the, the 60s came to an end and into the 70s, and they were uh, getting out of college, and uh, they were consuming more, and they became, especially about the 70s, it became a lot more attractive to advertisers but kxok yeah. they're at uh 6 30 a.m the same as the original kdwb in the twin cities oh it was, it was a giant station and it was really a thrill we we put on a, an event called the fun fair and we brought in the fifth dimension leo sayer mm-hmm. the association um the american breed the turtles i remember them I got to dance with uh, Marilyn McCoo of the Fifth Dimension. Fifth she dimension. was what a great talent she was. And the big heavyset guy in the Fifth Dimension used to wash dishes at the Chase Hotel, and they were the owners of the TV station I worked for. And here he is, a member of the the Fifth Dimension. Wow, they I were great. They were, I heard they were nice guys. too. They were wonderful. Um, I was. Oh, I was going to ask you. Um, well, we'll stay on the music thing. I'll ask you in a little bit. KPLR. Uh, my brother actually went down to St. Louis in 1971 and recorded on 
onto a cassette their r- local wrestling uh, show. Big wrestling place. Yeah. yeah, and one of the one of the wrestlers, uh, Blackjack Lanza, who yep. wrestled up here, was on the card down there. That's what they call it, the list or the uh-huh. card of wrestlers. And all of a sudden, it's like. Uh, that's interesting because I went through that um, uh, tape many years later and tried to clean it up a little bit. But uh, when they were saying, you know, uh, I can't remember who was the guy who was the host of the show, but, uh, you know, da-da-da from KPLR radio or, or TV. Uh, if you haven't gotten your tickets for Come Down to See yeah. Wrestling, you'll get them two, three weeks. Wait, wait, two, three weeks. You know, they did give the audience or the address right. and everything. And I thought, oh, that's got to be the equivalent of, uh, you know, the wrestling um, channel up here in our in our town. Well, it was the, so. the station was owned by the Coppler family. That's where you came up with KPLR. They own the Chase Park Plaza Hotel, which was the creme de la creme hotel in St. Louis, an old hotel right by Forest Park. And uh, they used to have wrestling at the Chase. Okay. And that's where where it all... And Sam Muchnick, who was the promoter down there... They they mentioned his name. Sam Sam talked to the Copplers when I was applying for a job as a news guy uh, and, and had a lot to do with me being hired. Now, I'd spent 11 years in radio doing sports doing news. I have a pretty good sports background. Can I brag a little bit? Yes, you can. Uh, I went to Bayless High School in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. graduated in 1955. Uh, I was there with a bunch of great athletes, small school, only 350 students, but we have a bunch of great baseball players, but uh, I still hold the record after 66 years of most wins by a pitcher in Bayless history. And I was getting ready to sign. I pitched semi-pro ball in St. Louis when I was 16. And I was a little left-hander, uh, fastball moved pretty good. Didn't have a, I didn't throw 95 miles an hour, but it had movement, had a great curveball. But uh, I was going to sign a minor league contract with the Philadelphia Phillies, 250 a month to play minor league ball. So I was pitching a, uh, a, a semi-pro game in St. Louis one Sunday afternoon. And about two weeks later, I was supposed to head to the minor leagues. I tore the rotator cuff Ouch. in my left arm. In that. So I do have a good – plus I played on a state tournament basketball team only because I could play defense. <laughs> That's, but I do, I do have a sports background and, and played a lot. Of, I played ball until I was 54 years old, eventually fast pitch, softball, slow pitch. But baseball was my life. If you grow up in St. Louis and you don't play baseball, you're an outcast. I had a date one time with Yogi Berra's niece, Marianne Berra. I met Yogi Bear once. Yeah, he I met over Yogi Berra. I said Yogi Bear and Boo Boo. No, um, I met him over at a TV station about 20 years ago. Uh, he was doing uh, selling sports memorabilia yeah. over at a place called a Value Vision. It doesn't exist anymore. But uh, yeah, he came in and we. I have all the outtakes of video. He goes, oh, "This is Yogi Bear, right? Oh, mama, I'm screwed up." And we're like, "That's yeah, okay, Yogi, do it again." Well, he was from the Italian section in St. Louis. Was called the Hill, and he and Joe Garagiola, who later became a, um, a major league catcher, not nearly as good as Yogi, but Joe's career started at the Chase Hotel doing Joe Garagiola. He was the announcer for wrestling at the Chase, mm. and that's how it all started for Joe Garagiola. But that's one of the most beautiful, great neighborhoods. Uh, Sublet Park. I played many baseball games there. That's where Yogi and Joe started playing their their kid baseball, and they nice. both went on to major league careers. Yeah, they did pretty good, actually. Um, uh, you know who else I heard that um, actually uh, wanted to play baseball, but he became a president of a country? Of all people, 
Castro. Bingo. Fidel from Cuba. And, He's yeah, I guess he wanted to play baseball, and they turned him down, and instead he um, was famous for his you know, being a, you know, a president of Cuba, I won't go into the politics or anything on he this wasn't show. Wasn't a president; but, uh, he was a dictator. Well, yes, he too. was a di- he was not the nicest guy in the world, but uh, not quite. But he was uh, a pretty good pitcher. But he was a good pitcher. We'll we'll give him credit for that at least. But uh, yeah, he was. That's another person who was, um, you know, wanted to go out to uh, play yeah. baseball. So. And, and they said, Walter Matthau and the Bad News Bears said, uh, Baseball, it's your all-American favorite pastime, you imbecile. He said it's one of the kids in the movie. Well, baseball like is still in my blood, and one of the thrills of my life was uh, was covering the Twins when they won the 1987 World Series over my hometown Cardinals. And believe me, I was rooting for the Twins. I've been up here, I mean, I covered the Twins for 20 years mm-hmm. uh, in Minnesota, and I knew all the players and Kirby Puckett and Herbeck and the whole group. What a what a great bunch of people. Gary Gaetti, uh, Viola, Frank Viola, yeah, the great pitcher, Burt yeah. Blylevin. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people said to me, well, I guess you're rooting for the Cardinals. No, no way. All my Cardinals were gone. Stan Musial was the greatest Stand baseball the player. I, greatest player I ever saw. And believe me, I saw a lot of players. You take his uh, batting average. 331 batting average, 22 years, 475 home runs, seven-time he was an all-star 22 years, MVP three years, won the batting title seven years. Put all that together, nobody better ever. As Ty Cobb said, Stan Musial is the closest thing to a perfect player that he'd ever seen. I have a record that he made in the other room, actually. Stan the man teaches kids how to play baseball. Yeah, and he played the harmonica, too. <laughs> and he played the harmonica for kids, yeah. too, I guess. Um, Bob Casey was the one who invented the saying up here for the twins, Harvey Perkins, or something like that. I, he had a little office at WWTC in the late 80s. And he worked so. for Bob Short he, yep. at the hotel in Minneapolis. That's right. Uh, Bob was a good guy. Yeah, Bob, you know, Bob owned WWTC at that time. Yep, that's how I knew all those guys. I didn't know that, really. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, really. And the Short Robert family, Short. well, then Bob Short died in 1982. The Short family continued to own the station until they finally sold it in 1990. And it's gone through many incarnations since then, although... They've been the talk current, for the really, the current, Yeah, the current talk format, they're owned by Salem Broadcasting. Now that's it's been working the for The Patriot format's been going on um, since 2001. You know, now this is going to knock your socks off. I, I had a chance to buy Bob Short's limo. And I was going to have a gangster tour in the Twin Cities after I lost my job, after 36 years. And uh, you're, you're you're young, you can still do it. Well, yeah, no, not okay, really good. Now, right. <laughs> but because I, I'm I'm a historian, I I mean everything from American history to world history to criminal history. I mean I, I don't don't laugh at me, but I'm I don't know of too many people in this world that know any more about the James Gang, Jesse James, Frank James, Joe Walsh, th- no, than I do. Well, I mean I go around. Well, this is prior to the virus, uh, speaking to senior groups in the Twin Cities about the true story of the James Gang. And then I do another subject called What in the World Has Gone Wrong with Journalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I did uh, radio for the 11 years, and then I had a chance to get into TV as a newsman. But I, I had a news background. I mean, a lot of people don't know this. I mean, I didn't just fly up and become successful. I went through a lot of baloney working in small markets. I made 50 cents an hour in my first job as a disc oh, jockey. You got a raise? Columbia. Those who heard me thought I was overpaid. 
an O2 You've got to raise then. Yeah, but I've interviewed John F. Kennedy. I interviewed him in 1968 when he was a senator. I interviewed uh, Lyndon Johnson twice, uh, once during the 64 campaign. And right after he got out of the presidency, he came to the Twin Cities area. And I, I, got an inter- and I interviewed Richard Nixon. Plus, you know, uh, Adlai Stevenson. I loved oh, yeah. Hubert Humphrey. Uh, Mondale, of course, being in Minnesota, you have to it's, know those guys. There's one thing, uh, John F. Kennedy said 1968, that would have been 58. No, right? I did it 58. Yes, 58. Right. I'm sorry. Did I say 68? Yeah. Uh, no, he, he, couldn't, could have talked, he, he couldn't have done that in 68. <laughs> you could have talked to Robert Kennedy in 68. Back then he was a June. senator, and he was standing right outside of the, the Senate chambers. I was with a good friend of mine, Fred Marshall. Uh, fraternity brother of mine and I saw him I walked over introduced myself thought all he can do is tell me to go away he said hey I used to be a journalist when I was younger and he was spent 20 minutes with him and I'll never forget it as long as I live mm-hmm. yes that was in August of 1958 right oh nice so there and he knew Marilyn Monroe uh, yes, he did. <laughs> a little more than we all did. So. Yeah, if anybody finds her bones, give them to me. I want to take them to my house. <laughs> well, you can have the thigh. I'll take the fever. <laughs> Jeff can have oh, the... Well, yeah, you don't want bones. Poor Joe, Dim- poor Joe DiMaggio. Every time I think about that, but... Yeah. Uh, Oh well, he was he Mr. Her so Coffee much. anyway. Um, <laughs> that's, I know that the Clark Gable uh, did the, her last movie, The Misfits, in nineteen sixty. Great movie though. Yeah, it was his last movie as well. Oh, him too. Huh? Yeah, it was it was his last movie? Who also was in it? Uh, they were. Oh, I can't remember. Oh God, I don't know. Uh, but it was. I liked that movie. Mm-hmm. Archie mm-hmm. was late for the set all the time, and she was on pills. And but that it's is a bad. wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's. I had to take some pills. And sorry. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I used to take pills when I was a kid. They were called Pal's Vitamins and Chalks. Papa Chalk. Anyway, remember those commercials in the sixties? Have you ever heard of Becca? Uh, when I was a kid growing up, you'd always hear commercials about Carter's Little Liver Pills. Oh, yeah. I do. I yeah. Did you I, hear the story about that? Some guy took Carter's Little Liver Pills his entire life. And when he died, they had to beat his liver to death with a stick. That's my old disc jockey stuff there. That's right. Uh, here's another old disc jockey thing I even used, and it was old-fashioned old at that time. Hey, I, I'm a little late today. A funny thing happened to me on the way over here today. I showed up. <laughs> and, there were, and the disc jockey in the other room who just got off. Hey, man, come on. That was last year's, man. I know, but it's January 1. Well, <laughs> it, it reminds me of Barry Zavan. You always say, well, today it's going to be muggy, followed by Toogie, Wiggy, and Thurgy. Toogie, Wiggy, and Well, then there is the old, uh, the old uh, thing. It's cold today and hot tamale as well. I don't know yeah. if Barry said that, but that was, all right, that's, an old, that's an old one there. He, he knew them all. He knew them all. <laughs> Tony Randall did that in The Odd Couple. He had played a disc jockey in one of their episodes. and he Barry said knew that. him pretty well, by the way. That's right, he did yeah. say. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah, I knew Tony Randall. I said, did you know Jack Klugman? Not quite as well as Tony Randall. And I do have some albums by Tony Randall. He, he uh, did some singing. But it was old songs from the 1920s, like Vodio Doe and Warm and Waverly and all that. I think it was doing the old L. Johnson stuff, too. Uh, sorry, Jolson, who Sinatra was a fan of, uh, of L. Jolson. Okay, I, I just thought I'd throw that out there. He was a little before my time, but I'm very well aware. He made the first sound movie 
Yeah, jazz Jolson, singer. The jazz singer. I like Ted Lewis and his orchestra, and he was around since like 1913. My dad turned me on to that because my dad was born in 1914, mm-hmm. and he was into a lot of that stuff in the 20s and 30s. And my dad, you know, it, when I was living, obviously, my dad took out all the 45s and goes, Hey, Stuart, have you heard of Ted Lewis and his orchestra? Here's Elf Johnson over here. Jolson, Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elf <laughs> Johnson. My dad would get it wrong all the time. And it would be like, oh, what's this Frank Sintra? Oh, no, no, that's Frank Spaghetti, you shut up, you know what? <laughs> Speaking so. of old-time movies, another interview that I'll never forget, and I, uh, I did that interview when I worked for KPLR-TV. I had it's kind of a noon interview show. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I can't think of her name. She was the girlfriend of the Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy. Okay. Gloria Swanson. I was about to say her. Thank Gloria you. Swanson. She was... Um, one of the really uh, a top-notch silent movie star and then mm-hmm. went into the sound pictures and that. But she showed up at the Chase Park Plaza, and I had a chance to put her on the on the show, and uh, it was uh, quite an experience. Nice. My big claim to fame, this is years later. I was only seven years old at this point. Um, the top, more modern guitar rockers, I was able to meet Jimi Hendrix when I was seven years wow. old. Mm-hmm. And how that happened was uh, I only was together with him for five minutes. He was playing up here in Minneapolis or Minnesota, St. Paul. And my cousin who lives in California, who was a studio musician, a guy named Jack Lee, uh, was in the warm-up band for the Hendrix, um, you know, Band of Gypsies, or his last American tour. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he, uh, we, we got on the side of the stage or something, and we wanted to talk to my cousin and all that. And I'm the little odd kid out so I can't say hello to my cousin. Everyone is congregated around him. So I go and talk to these other weirdos in psychedelic suits and all that. And they're all smoking cigarettes. And, you know, I, are you are you guys band play Or are you musicians? Something like that. And I play drums a little bit. And they're like, hey, I like this kid here. And then a, a janitor comes by and says, hey, you hippies, put them cigarettes out. <laughs> and they all blow smoke in his face. And he goes, hey, man, it's all part of the act, baby. And they started laughing at him. And I started laughing at this old janitor. I go, ha, 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 ha. And they say, hey, this kid's got a little sense of humor. He goes, oh, wow, thank you. Can I come up and play drums with you? And he goes, hey, that's our drummer over there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh okay, you're you know, bigger than me. <laughs> one thing so, I wanted to mention, that, that when, when you, as you know, and as Jeff knows, when you work, in broadcasting or in the in the communication industry, you meet a lot of people. I don't ever oh, want yeah. anybody to think that I'm saying, oh, look who I know, or look, I, yeah. I was so honored to meet these people, people that you've read about, people that you've seen, you've heard, and then yeah. there you are, history is coming alive. Before one, one of the most unforgettable interviews of my life, we were talking about World War II, was with Paul Tibbetts. Now, who was Paul Tibbetts? He dropped the atomic bomb yep. on Hiroshima, August 5th, 1945, mm-hmm. and the airplane, the Enola Gay. Came to St. Paul several years ago. I spent a better part of the afternoon with him. He gave me his book, autographed it. We actually uh, corresponded for a while, uh, but he was a 29-year-old colonel, and he dropped the atomic bomb uh, on Hiroshima. And he wrote a book about that, and I have his autograph and the entire crew, but a People would say to me, well, that's terrible. How could he drop that bomb? Well, it ended World War II. We would have lost a million American soldiers, Marines, whatever, had we had the to invade. The war would have kept going on. And, would, and, on, and yeah. the Japanese would have lost four to six million. Mm-hmm. It ended it the war. 
Yeah, it, it really did be at that point because otherwise they were going to be like just going on. It's terrible. Yeah, war is not good anyway. That's period. Right. But um, sometimes you got to use force to uh, defeat force. You know. Yeah. You got to do that. So, but you're right on. Um, one thing, um, uh, when you meet people that you've heard of or seen on TV or hear on radio, like when I worked with some of my radio heroes up here, when I was a little kid, like in junior high, elementary school, and watching people on TV, including yourself, because I thought, wow, what, what do I say when I meet these people? I remember wanting, to, telling my mom we were at Target store, uh, a department store, um, a Saturday night, about 9.30, they're closing. And for some reason, I wanted to get home to watch your newscast, uh, The World Today. Well, how could you miss that? Well, of course. I mean, you know. <laughs> and I just heard in my head, for some reason, uh, Barry's van saying, and you will be home to watch it, won't you? And I'm like, well, come on, Mom. Let's, you know, and she's like, I'm paying. Okay, I got, you yeah. know, the cashier. And we got home, and I turned it on, and, uh, you know, we heard the theme music, which we'll hear in a few minutes. Um you know, let the world hear it. And uh, I was like, uh, okay, well, we're home. We watched it. For some reason, she was buying flowers, and they opened up the freezer door. And for some reason, that little breeze came out from that, you know, the refrigerated flower stuff that they have today. I don't know why it reminded me of the newscast you guys were doing, but I thought, I got to get home to watch it for some reason, the Channel 5 News. And I do remember the, um, before you guys got there in 71 i think the kstp theme was uh and now here is kstp news with uh you know so uh, jeff knows a little more about bob this ryan. bob ryan and i remember for some reason it was a little more uh suit and tie stuff shirt type stuff it wasn't like uh you know the humor with you guys and barry and uh, well the anchors yeah. prior to that never interreacted with each other they never yeah. there was not much communication you 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 did your story and then it went to the next person the next mm-hmm. person and uh it we we sort of were uh, part of a trend a lot of people don't know this but um Back when we had that 51% share of the audience, we were reaching, because our signal it was, it was also carried by some other stations outstate, we were reaching about a million people every night. I believe it. And that's incredible when you think about that. Yeah. Oh, something else I wanted to tell you, too. Um, I was in Mankato, uh, 1971, August, and uh, I had to go with my dad. He he was a, an attorney, actually, or a judge, and he had to go down to Mankato to hear a case or something, and uh, my brother and I went down with him. And what did we do? Uh, for some reason, we went down there, and somehow we saw the world today, the newscast in Channel 5 on one of their, you know, the, I don't think they had a radio station on Channel 5, or TV station, and we saw a little bit, the the waves were drifting in and out of the television yeah. thing. Sometimes back before cable, you could do that. Um, my family, we got a color TV, a new one, in 1978. Uh, we had to replace one of the TVs, and we were getting, we're pulling in on Channel uh, 13, WEAU in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, uh, another station from Wausau, right. and another one from Iowa. Uh, K- uh, KCMT in Alexandria used to occasionally come in Channel 7. Yep, yep. He knows another, all this stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, back this, in the old days of, of broadcasting, when they, I live right by the towers now. Uh, here in the Twin Cities where all the yeah. TV stations had their towers, and they they still use them. You can still get live TV during a bad storm. I change my TV over to live, and I can get that stuff off the towers. Oh, nice. And uh, But, you know, there, yeah, those towers are in Shoreview, mm-hmm. which is the highest part of the Twin Cities. I almost right. went up with Don Keelblock 
a photographer at uh, at Channel Five in uh, in St. Paul, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Had the city line ran through the building, Minneapolis <laughs> and St. Paul, and he asked me if I was afraid of heights, and I said, "Yeah, I, I don't like it." So he decided that he was going to take a helicopter, and oh. I didn't go. But that was the day the tower collapsed, killing seven people in Shoreview. I was going Remember to ask that, you about that. Yeah. I almost went, but I thank goodness uh, because he said, well, we got to take like an elevator that goes to the top. And I kind of chickened out. But Don finally decided to uh, take some, because they were going to put the final piece on top, the candelabra. And those towers are 1,400 feet. They're pretty high. (laughs) And it buckled. And seven people were killed. Four were on the tower and three, three down below died. Yep. And you know what? That was one of the influences for me to get into radio, actually, hearing about that incident. And in fact, I, um, one of my friends that doesn't live on the neighborhood anymore, we were pretending to play radio and we pretended we had a TV show called what? Stand by Shoreview. That was going to be the mm-hmm. uh, TV. And now, Stand By Shoreview, starring, you know, uh, Gil Gray and Gray Gill, and uh, here they are, and in tonight's episode, radio doesn't seem like TV anymore. And we're huh. playing in this actual room with whatever, and we're playing disc jockeys, and things are falling over, and we're like, no, don't do that. We're trying to be funny for, you know, whoever. But it that whole thing came about... You know, uh, thinking I really I wanted to go into radio anyway or communication, but when I heard about that, my brother who uh, was upstairs uh, or maintenance man number four comes down and he goes, "Yeah, you hear about the Shoreview thing? People died out there." I said, "You mean people died on TV? No, no, the antenna and all that." Every time I drive by there, because I live maybe a mile and a half from there. I, I can't help but think about that. Now, look yeah. at those towers. and There are several towers there, but it was the main tower. It was the KSTP-TV tower, basically. Oh, boy. And they still use them for various, but you can still get a signal from it. It goes out about, what, about 100 miles, something like that. Yeah. You can uh, also see them from uh, the western side of the Twin City area because I can see them yeah. clear as day mm-hmm. through the Twin Cities. I think Lake Owasso is not far from there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There were just... several lakes in that area, Arden Hills, mm-hmm. Shoreview, Roseville. Yeah. In fact, you know what we should do? It's a good time to do this uh, if you want. Um, we can take a quick break here, and I can play a little bit of uh, this um, little musical interlude. Uh, you guys will know it well. Uh, the rest of our audience will finally hear it for the first time if you have lived in, uh, what was it, Philly and the Twin City area. Thanks for tuning in to the Tom Ryder interview on Songs from the Basement, Part 1, as he promotes his new book, The Humble Shine Kid, from Studio Z7 Publishing. Tune in for Part 2 next time with Tom Ryder, Jeff Lanto, and Stuart Held on Songs from the Basement.